Father, thank you again for the privilege we have this morning to uh, sing your praises, to declare your excellencies, to exalt your name. Father, thank you so much. And uh, I pray as we look into your word, you would grant us understanding uh, and wisdom so that we might know exactly what you intended uh, in your word so that we would be those who uh, become more and more like your son, Jesus as your word works in us. We thank you for this morning. We pray that you would bless it now as your word goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are all kinds of cults out there. There are all kinds of uh, bad churches that uh, take the truth of God and twist it uh, to uh, eliminate uh, the personhood or the humanity of the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, you have the Mormons, you have the Muslims, whatever it might be, who claim a Jesus, uh, but it's not the Jesus of Scripture. The Apostle Paul would talk about the false apostles, how they had influenced the uh, Corinthians and Second Corinthians, uh, and there were other Jesuses, in a sense. And there are other Jesuses out there, not the true Jesus, there are other Jesuses being preached. Uh, we see that certainly in the churches these days, mainline churches, uh, a Jesus that doesn't require repentance uh, of, for sins, a Jesus that just love is enough and you're in, or a Jesus like we see in the uh, seeker-sensitive churches who is uh, there to meet all your felt needs rather than a Jesus who calls upon you to acknowledge your sin and trust in him for salvation, then he will change you and you won't have any true want because of a true relationship with him. You see, and so we have that. And we have people who uh, twist the word of God. Uh, and for us believers, we think, oh, that's no problem if they, you know, those guys, we can spot that. It's not really a threat to us because we, we believe Jesus is God. We believe he came in human flesh. But it, there are false people out there with false theologies. Uh, someone in our body uh, last week was listening to the same show I was listening to on the on the radio, a talk show, and this guy claims to know the Lord and be a Christian and all that stuff. Well, he was uh, proclaiming a different Jesus, a different Jesus. And ultimately underneath that, uh, this evil man was uh, uh, dismissing the deity of Jesus Christ. And you think, well, what's the danger about that? Well, if you if you listen to him and I say, do not listen to this guy, don't listen to him, um, but if you were to listen, you'd hear some things that sound kind of okay and kind of normal and right. And then you hear things that are wrong. Well, if everything is wrong. Everything is tainted. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And you'd come to see that those little things that you think might be right are just an avenue to twist things so that you would have your eyes pulled off Jesus Christ. And the same threats were happening to the Colossians. Uh, we see, and you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 17. And I'm going to ask the question, do we have an accurate view of Jesus? Uh, because they were being uh, uh, tempted to be deluded by persuasive arguments. And this bad guy on the radio, he was using persuasive arguments. He's a bad, evil man uh, to take the truth concerning the personhood of Jesus Christ to twist it. Uh, John would say there's many antichrists have gone into the world. He would say test the spirits to see if they're from God because many false prophets have gone out. There's bad guys out there, and they're telling you how to follow Jesus. They're telling you how to follow, but it's not the same Jesus. So do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is, and can we defend that? Can we not get taken captive because we know the truth, and we are not going to be taken away from uh, that well, as I mentioned, we're in Colossians, and the Apostle Paul is under house arrest. It's about 62 A.D., and he has never visited the believers in Colossae, but he has heard of their faith in the Lord and their love for one another, which is an evidence of salvation. Epaphras has come to him, and evidently Epaphras has, has definitely shared that with him, but he has also shared that there were threats to the Colossian church. There were those coming along trying to add things into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, and uh, Paul says in the end of chapter 2, these are of no helper. They, they don't help in any way in, in fleshly, with fleshly indulgence. They are of, no, um, they are of uh, no value against fleshly indulgence. 
And so the Apostle Paul, the solution to these false teachers who are who were uh, maligning the character and truth concerning Christ and bringing up other ways to to, to follow him, quote-unquote, uh, the solution was a focus on the person of Jesus Christ and who he is. And you see, if you focus on the true Jesus from Scripture, you're actually going to do well. If you focus on a false Jesus, we as believers can know the true Jesus and we can get a distorted view. We can sin and we should not go that way because uh, it leads to uh, terrible, terrible uh, loss. Uh, but uh, if you know the true Jesus, uh, he is going to uh, protect you, we're going to see. And we're gonna, if you understand who he is, uh, then we're going to be protected from uh, those who would try to take us captive. So Paul's solution to focus on Christ. Um, as we're going to see, he's the Redeemer, he's the Creator, he's before all things, in him all things hold together. We're going to see that today. He's the head of the body, that's the church, he's preeminent. He's fully God and fully man. He died for us to present us holy and blameless. And he is in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he is the one that is proclaimed that we might be presented uh, uh, complete. And in chapter 2, we see that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so don't get taken captive. Don't get kidnapped spiritually by these guys on the radio, whatever it might be. Don't get kidnapped. Don't get kidnapped Trust the Lord. And because we have died and have been raised with him, set your mind on the things above, not the things of earth. Uh, choosing to say no to sin. We can say no to sin because we are dead to sin and we abide in Christ. We're dead to sin, saying no to sin, saying no to those things, but then allowing his word to govern all our actions, letting his word dwell richly in us. And then within that, uh, obeying the Lord in all our relationships, marriage, uh, parent-child, slave-master, work relationship, or in our relationship with outsiders. And so Colossians is very, very, an extremely important and practical book. And so far in our study of Colossians, we have seen, as I mentioned already, that uh, the Apostle Paul and Timothy were brought to their knees in thankfulness for the true salvation of these Colossians. Uh, they had tr- heard the gospel, they had believed in Jesus, and they, had l- they were loving one another. They had a hope founded, uh, they, they were founded in hope that was laid up for them in heaven, which was revealed in the gospel that Epaphras, that faithful man, had taught them. They had heard and understood the grace of God and truth, the message of truth, the gospel, and they had believed in Jesus And they had a genuine love in the Spirit. So Paul was so thankful, praising the Lord and thanking God we see. And then in the last two weeks, we saw through his prayer, Paul's prayer, how we can walk in a manner worthy uh, of this great calling, which we've been called a tremendous uh, statement. How can we walk worthy of the Lord pleasing him? And we saw that the worthy walk is a result of being filled with the knowledge of his will. Look at verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we have heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. If you want to please the Lord, then you must know uh, that the worthy walk and pleasing him is based on functioning in the full knowledge of his will, being controlled by the full knowledge of his will. We have the, this, uh, his will revealed in his word, and his spirit gives us insight into that. And so when God's word is dwelling richly in us, our lives are going to be changed. So then, we don't strive to please and walk worthily. You'll burn out. We don't uh, listen to the counsel of the wicked. We need to get into the word of God and meditate on it, allow it to fill our hearts that we would have the full knowledge of his will. So the worthy walk is the result of being filled with the knowledge of his will. And then we saw uh, what that worthy walk looks like as Paul revealed that. There was a picture of that, uh, verse 10, in the middle of verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light 
For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Just reminds me of last week, right? Tremendous passage. Tremendous reality. So the evidence of uh, worthy walk pleasing when we're filled with his word in our hearts and it is controlling our thinking. The evidence is going to be bearing fruit and a continual increase of the knowledge of him. A continual strengthening by him that we would endure patiently. And then there's a continual joyous thanksgiving for our great salvation in Jesus Christ. If that's not happening, then I would posit to say you're not filled or being controlled by the full knowledge of his will. And that happens to us at times. His word scapes right out. It's like a cup with holes. We've got to keep filling it up, keep letting his word dwell richly in us. So at that point, we see here that we have the incredible, that we have this incredibly revealing prayer. And Paul, from here, begins to springboard into an amazing uh, discourse on the person of Jesus Christ. Amazing discourse. Boy, a lot of distractions today, isn't there? That's because this is so good and this is so wonderful, right? Whenever those are happening, and okay, uh, this is awesome. This, this, this passage is amazing. And so here... Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to hit false teaching right in the head. He's going to, and this is what we need to know when those people out there say, oh, Jesus could have been tempted, or they say he's not God. Hey, go right to the Word of God. It's right here, as we're going to see. It's right here to defend the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and that we would not be taken captive. It's right here in what we're going to study. So do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is? Let's take a look at our passage, chapter 1, verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Tremendous passage. And so my question is, do we have an accurate view of Jesus? We have to. We have to to be saved, but our view can get skewed by bad guys or our emotions or whatever it might be, and then we're in trouble in our sanctification. You see? So here, we need to know, as we'll see here first of all, that he is God, and we need to remember that. The Jesus we trusted in is God who took on human flesh. He is God Notice it says in verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God. This passage literally reads, who is the image of the invisible God? Now, the NASB and the New King James, they add, and he is, or he is, to protect the the right interpretation. And that's okay. We understand that. But literally, it is who is. And so why do I bring this up? Because to be a good workman handling accurately the text so that we don't get taken captive by the bad guys who will twist these verses, by the way. We need to understand it rightly so that we can even make a defense, right, and share it for those who ask us why we have hope. Not to defend against bad guys. They're on their way to hell. Uh, We need to know it for ourselves so that we don't fall captive to them. That's really what we need to do, right? And so here, we see here that this verse is connected to what was said previously, You see this term, who is the image of the invisible God? That's not a full sentence, right? There's something that's connected to it. So he's expanding upon the fourth evidence of the worthy walk. Joyously, verse end of 11, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And he's going to go on. You remember, we saw last week this tremendous truth that we have been made adequate, done deal as believers, to share or take part in the inheritance of the saints in light. Tremendous. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We're heirs of the kingdom. We're heirs of eternal life. And how did he do this? How did the Father do this? For he, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Here we see we were delivered from the domain of darkness. We were in the sphere of sin and evil. And God delivered us. He delivered us. We were transferred. When you believed in Jesus, you were snatched out of Satan's domain. You were snatched out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Tremendous. 
Now, notice that it's important for us, this term, his beloved son. This is important because that's going to be the subject we're going to see. Because look at verse 14, in whom, that would be his beloved son, right? And this is really important. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ, he paid the price. He paid the ransom that God requires for sin. He died for our sins. He died in our place. And so therefore, when we trust in Jesus Christ, God, we receive his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, because of faith in him. We are justified by faith. And we have the forgiveness of sins. And it is through his beloved son. And notice this. This goes into our passage, his beloved son, who is the image of the invisible God. We need to know this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. It is through Christ Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins. It is through his beloved son. You say, well, wait a second. Who's his beloved son? You know, who, who, what does he mean by that? You have the detractors that would say, well, wait. And the reality is God's word is very clear who his beloved son is. You might remember what the father declared from heaven when Jesus was baptized. Matthew 3:16. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, this is what? My beloved son in whom I am well pleased. His beloved son is none other than Jesus Christ. And the other passages affirm that it is through Jesus Christ in his blood. If he's on we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our passage is pointing to his beloved son, Jesus, who is the image of of the invisible God. It is his beloved son who is the image of the invisible God. And so as we look at this, we say, well, what does that mean? What does this mean, image of it? What does that mean? We need to understand because bad guys take God's truth and twist it to take you captive. They make persuasive arguments that contradict the rest of scripture, but they focus you on their twisting and they keep you in that area rather than seeing the rest of the word of God, which proves that they are wrong, by the way. But as we look at this, what does he mean by this? Well, this term translated image, this Greek word icon, uh, speaks of an image, a likeness or a form or appearance. And it was used to speak of an image on a coin or a statue. That was the image. That's the image of Abraham Lincoln on that statue, right? That's it represents him, whatever it might be. You might remember when Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, they asked him, is it lawful to give poll tax to Caesar or not? And what was his answer? Matthew 22:18. but Jesus perceiving their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius and he said to them, who's likeness or whose icon this is our word right whose image and inscription is this they said to him caesar's then he said to them to render what then render to caesar the things that are caesar and to god the things that are god's caesar's picture was an icon it represented the reality behind it right it represented caesar himself uh, and so then Although Caesar was not visibly manifest there, the coin pointed to him, right? It was an icon, right? It pointed to him. So here we recognize also it's true that we as mankind are in the icon of God, 1 Corinthians 11, 7. But we are not God. We were created. We were created in his image, as we'll see. We are not God. And so wait a second. You go back to our passage. What does he mean here then? Now, who is, the son, who is this son the image of or the icon of? He says here, who is the image of the invisible God? You see, God is spirit and invisible and not visible. But yet, as we'll see, he has manifest himself through his son, Jesus, who took on human flesh. You see, the reality is God in, in total is invisible. God is spirit. Now, we know, as we'll talk about Jesus in a minute, because Jesus is God. But you might remember what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the king, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be 
honor and glory forever and ever. We even know from Romans chapter 1 that his attributes are invisible. His invisible attributes have been revealed in what he's created. The invisible attributes of deity. You can't look at the stars and their order and their magnitude and the gloriousness of them and not understand there is the attribute of deity behind that. But it is invisible. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine, are clearly seen. So then the Father's beloved Son who is in the image of the invisible God. But what does that mean? We need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We need to see it rightly. Otherwise, we can be taken captive, even on the passages that explain the truth concerning Christ. We'll see a little later on that the bad guys try to take these and twist them, as we'll say. But if we are, if we are grounded in the Word of God and focused on the God of the Word, we're not going to get taken captive. So then, the Father's beloved Son is the image of the invisible God. But what does that mean? Notice in John, uh, he gives us some insight. Turn to John 1. John 1. We gain insight into this, this uh, truth. And we need to know the Word of God. Bad guys are going to sound like Christians. And we need to know when we hear something wrong that that's not right. And we need to know how to respond. We need to know how to get away from there and to run away, guys, to run away. Get away from that. John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. Okay? That's the invisible God. All right? No man has seen God at any time. And then he goes on to talk about the only begotten God, monogenes, the unique son, that's what that means, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. No one has seen God in his totality. There's one God we're going to see. But his unique son, the only begotten son, God the Son, has explained him. And that term explain is in the Greek, exogeomai. He has exegeted him. He has explained who God is. We see this in John 14. You see, because God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, uh, there's one God, but God, the Son, took on human flesh. And in his humanity, being fully God, God is explained to us. He is revealed to us. John 14:6. Let's turn there. John 14:6. And these bad guys, they take a half a verse. And they, they, they focus you on that, but they don't take the whole thing. Don't take the whole thing. They twist the word of God, and they're dangerous, evil men. Don't try to f- battle with them. You're not going to win. Don't try to battle Satan. You get away from the evil, false teachers. John 14:6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on you know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me? He's talking about relationally, personhood, right, in a sense. You know, the, the, he says here, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And he said, show, how do you say shows the Father? Do not, not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's saying, hey, you know, you've seen me. You've seen the nature of God, the Father. You've seen his nature. It's one God revealed in three persons. We'll talk about that. And this is the part we don't understand because we're not God. But scripture reveals truth. And if you are a believer, you're going to believe it. You're not going to deny it like that guy I spoke of earlier. You're not going to deny the truth. The truth is God has revealed himself in three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet there's one God. How does that work? I don't understand. But I believe it. I believe it wholeheartedly. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is three. No. The Lord your God is one. It's one God revealed in three persons. Again, I don't understand how that works, but it's one God. That's how when Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that he is the Father and the Father is him. That's not true. They are distinct persons, but yet one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. And these words you're commanding. 
shall cleanse you, shall be in your heart. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord. There's none, is no other besides me. There's no other God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. The beginning of 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God. Ephesians chapter 4. One faith. One, there's one God, right? One faith. One baptism, right? It's not six gods. There's not a million gods like in India. There's one God, and this one God, who is the true God, uh, is revealed in three persons. And we'll talk more about that. So then we see Jesus. He didn't blur the distinction between the person and him and the Father. He didn't say, I equal the Father. He said, you've seen his character. You've seen his nature, the nature of God, if you've seen me. You've been with me so long, Philip, and you don't realize that? And so here, Jesus was pointing out, uh, you've seen God, and you know what he's like. And so here, we see that Jesus is in the image, who is, not in, who is the image or icon of the invisible God. He is the exact, as we will see from Hebrews, representation, because he is God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. You could turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Paul is defending uh, against the false accusations that his ministry wasn't saving so much. You got those ministries that can got the, the clicker on the wall on how many saved people they got saved. Well, God's the one that keeps count of that, you know. And so evidently they were making accusations that Paul's gospel was not powerful. It's, it's veiled. No one's believing it or whatever it might say. And he responds this way with the truth. Second Corinthians 4, 3, and even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. You know, you got the bad guys out there that will do a song and dance for anybody and everybody because the people who aren't, who've rejected Christ are still rejecting Christ. So they don't want to hear about the true gospel. They want a song and dance. They'll accept that, but not the gospel because they've not believed. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And he says here, that they might not see the light of the glory of the light, excuse me, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And what does it say here? Who is the image of God? That's what we're seeing in our passage, isn't it? You see, indeed, even Jesus himself claimed to be God. I'll share some passages. I'm going to give you so many passages. If you need to know about the deity of Christ, you're going to have 400 passages. The whole thing points to Jesus, by the way. But here, let's take a look at this. Uh, John 14, 9, we talked about that already. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's claiming to have the very nature of God, right? Uh, John 8, 53, truly, truly, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's pretty interesting. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John uh, 10, 30, 10, 30. Uh, this is speaking of the Good Shepherd. I and the Father are one. In the Good Shepherd discourse, the Jews took up stones against him. Jesus answered, said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Jesus clearly uh, affirmed his own deity in a very humble manner. And then the scripture affirms it all over the place. Let me just share these. You can take notes on these. You can write them down or whatever it might be. Uh, You can listen to them. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 20, 27, when Jesus had risen from the dead, Thomas, we call him Downing Thomas, right? Uh, Thomas is uh, having his little issue, and Jesus is so gracious. And what does he say? He says, there, and he said to Thomas, reach here your fingers, see my hands, reach here your hand and put them into my side, and be not believing, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Okay, very clear. Hebrews chapter 1, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers, and that was John 20, 28, and this is Hebrews 1, God after he spoke long 
uh, go to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world we're going to see that in a little bit and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature that's pretty clear he holds everything by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on a high a little bit farther up in hebrews 1 8 so you, we don't get confused but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God. That's a clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. It's forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Philippians chapter 2, For although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he found appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death in the cross. Existed in the form of God. Romans 9, 5, whose are the fathers and from whom Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. In Colossians, we'll see this as we get to it, Lord willing. Unless the Lord comes, that'd be great. Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Acts twenty twenty eight. you think, oh, that's not a passage about deity. Well, yes, it is. Be on guard for yourselves, as the Ephesian elders warning, uh, or, uh, Paul warning the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock from which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God shed his blood. God took on human flesh. He shed his own blood. He purchased with his own blood. How valuable is that? Infinite value. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That Greek format makes an equality there. You can't deny it. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, uh, Simon Peter, bondservant, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reality is, Scripture is clear, abundantly clear, that Jesus is God. He is the icon or image of the invisible God. Do you believe it? He's God. So then, two things uh, that we need to see here so far. First, Jesus is God. Second, God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind through his son, Jesus. And so if he is God, then who do we worship? We worship Jesus. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, right? After he had resurrected, the ladies worshipped him when they were on the road, right? They worshipped him. So do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is? He is God. And if he's God, are you willing to bow down to him and worship him to obey him, as we'll say? And then notice in our passion, passion, in our passage, not only is he God, he is the supreme Lord of all creation. Look at verse 15. And he, that's his beloved son, is the image of the visible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now this is where we can get hung up. And this is where the evil, satanic, false religion of the JWs comes in. Uh, this is where they can take people captive through being ignorant of scripture. They can uh, use persuasive arguments to, to delude you rather than you understanding the truth of God and dividing it rightly and, and understanding that and getting away from that, right? And so here, we see here, it says the firstborn. But so we have the, this false religion of the JWs, as we'll see, in the Watchtower being a false prophet, capitalizing on biblical ignorance and the blindness of their followers, in twisting this very passage to say what it doesn't say. So now they say the term firstborn, what does it mean? But born first. So therefore Jesus was born and he was created. That's what they say. He was not eternally God. He was born. That's what they'll say. And they say Jesus, he's the firstborn. And if you have only this passage, you go, wow, that sounds impossible. That, that meaning firstborn does mean firstborn. Sure does. But it also means... Something else, as we'll see. And context determines the meaning of words. 
You see, on a cursory look of this passage, without looking at the myriad of passages I just revealed that Jesus is God, you might be taken captive to an evil interpretation. But this interpretation is simply heresy and not true. And let me give you four quick reasons. First of all, nowhere in Scripture is it said that Jesus is a created being. Nowhere. Uh, Scripture affirms, as we will see, that he is the creator of all things. We're going to see that in a minute. You just read another verse. You've got to read another verse. You just got to keep going. Uh, for by him all things are created. Now, the JWs are going to add a word in there, all other things, in their translation to try and slip you up. But there's no manuscript that's ever been brought forth that has that in there. There's not one Greek manuscript that has the word other. All of them have, for by him all things were created, not all other things. They twist the word of God and woe to them. God's beloved son did not come into existence, did not come into existence as the firstborn. He was and always is God, the creator, as we will see, of all things. Now, so, yet, but we're going to see that Esau, he was firstborn, but yet Jacob was considered firstborn and received the inheritance. There's more to it to this term of firstborn that we need to understand. You see, Israel was also considered to be the firstborn, Exodus 4.22, and I'll read this for you. Exodus 4.22. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. That's the same word prototokos in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so here we see this term prototokos can also mean position or rank. First place. The firstborn by nature had the first place, but it didn't always mean that the firstborn was the firstborn, as we'll see, or if that. It came to speak of uh, primarily position or rank. And again, Esau was born first. He was the firstborn, quote-unquote, yet Jacob was considered the firstborn, the preeminent one. Speaking of David and prophetically the Messiah, in Psalm 89:27, we see this clearly relayed. God says, I will make him my firstborn. And then he explains it. The highest of the kings of earth. Firstborn, the most preeminent. I'm going to make him the most preeminent. Yes, he's going to be humbled in a sense. You're not going to be able to see that, you know, but then he will be made to where he was. Preeminent. Therefore, God highly exalted him, right? Because he humbled himself to the point of death. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, uh, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. Was he the first one that rose from the dead? No, Lazarus actually rose before that, right? There were those that rose from the dead. Many tombs and res- people were resurrected when Jesus died. But he is the first, as in the preeminent one, in which everyone else's resurrection depends because it proves that God accepted his sacrifice. Romans 8, 29, uh, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Not the first, but the highest. The highest, the most prominent. God's beloved son did not come into existence as the firstborn. He was the firstborn in terms of rank. He is the highest. And fourth, our context of our passage demands this interpretation. The context demands that it's not speaking of being born in terms of becoming into existence because we're going to see that he is supreme Lord of all creation because he created all things. So it wasn't that he came on the scene in 2000 and that was when Jesus first came about. No, God the Son, as we'll see, existed forever and ever as God the Son and God the Son took on human flesh. So notice in our passage, Scripture absolutely refutes the deadly satanic heresy of those Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus was not created. He is preeminent. He's always first in terms of rank, in terms of rank. Well, notice also our passage shows why he's supreme, why he is preeminent over all things. Notice, because he created all things. You know, if you create it, you've got supremacy over it, right? If you created everything, you've got supremacy over everything. For by him, verse 16, all things were created. That's pretty clear. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
So Paul uses this term for to institute an explanation, but this term for here, it could be, it's actually sometimes it'll be just like that for to explain, but this term in Greek is the term hadi, which means because. And we think, we understand that. We use the term for in our language, take two aspirins for a headache, or take two aspirins because you have a headache, right? And so here he's saying for all things, uh, for or because he is firstborn, he's the firstborn preeminent in rank because he created all things, right? You're the tops if you created it all, right? That's really what it's saying. And so there, because. So Jesus is the supreme Lord of our creation because he's the preeminent one, the firstborn, the preeminent one, because by him all things were created. That's what it says. Now, in this short phrase, let's make some observations because uh, uh, it's important to see this, that there are, there's God and there are all things, and there's nothing in between. For by him, all things were created. you got God, the Son, and all things, both in the heavens on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is above all things, and in him all things together. Now, J.D., we substitute that word in there. Not one manuscript has it. They say all other things. Um, it's an evil translation. It's not true. So here, in these two short verses, 16 and 17, we have the term all things used four times. We have this idea. What does it mean in Greek? It means all things. <laughs> so God created the heavens and the earth. God did it through his son, Jesus, who is God. Remember what we saw in John 1.1? 1, 1, all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Remember what we saw in Hebrews chapter 1 concerning Jesus, his son, through whom he also made the world, right? We see very clearly that he created all things. He's the supreme Lord because he created everything. This little term, because, puts a death nail into that J.W. heresy. If you just read the next verse. The firstborn can't mean what they say it means in light of the next verse. He's preeminent because he created it all. He's not preeminent because he was created. That doesn't mean, that doesn't work. It's not true, right? He's preeminent because he created it all. So with that in mind, we see here, because he has created everything, he's the supreme Lord with rights over his creation. Does not the potter, isn't the potter preeminent over the clay? Isn't that true? For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or under dominions or rulers or authorities. The Son created all things. In the heavens, the Son created all things on earth, literally upon the earth. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. What a magnificent creation from the farthest star to the wonder of birth. The beauty of it all. God created it through his Son, Jesus. He's the creator. For by him all things were created. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. And think about that. God did it through his son Jesus Christ, who is God. Genesis 2, 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the heaven, earth and heaven. Exodus 20, 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea that is all and in them. We see um, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were released, notice what the people say. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to, the, to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in it. When Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra after healing a man, the people started calling them Greek gods, wanting to sacrifice to them, and they responded in this way. Acts 14:15 and saying men why are you doing these things we are also men of the same nature as you and preach to the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to the living god who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them Proverbs 20:12 the ear hearing ear and the seeing eye the lord has made both of them the reality is he has made everything, which includes the visible and the invisible. We see that here in our passage, middle of verse 16, visible and invisible, the seen and the unseen. And then he elaborates. So the seen, we see the creation, right? That's the scene, right? I see you, that's the scene. 
You were created by God. This, this world was created by God. Our little puppy was created by God. The seen, right? But here, also the unseen, the invisible. He says here, and he, he, he explains or elaborates of the sphere of the unseen, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities. What's he talking about? Well, I think here he's taking the first blow at the heresy that saw Jesus as an angel. He's above them. He created them all. These are terms, in a sense, uh, of rank and classifications of angelic beings, thrones, lordships, rulers, authorities. And Jesus is not an angel. He is God the Son, the Creator, who created all things, including angels. He created the angels. And when he took on human flesh, he was made for a little while lower than angels. Hebrews chapter 2. Having taken on human flesh in his incarnation, in his humility. Now, in his exaltation, he is infinitely above the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. When he brings the preeminent one into the world, he is to be worshipped. All the angels of God are to worship him. Ephesians 1.21, he is far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name of his name, not only in this age, but the age to come. And a little side note, we can be so centered, self-centered in our thinking. We can think that we are the center of the universe. But there's actually an angelic sphere, by the way. And God is doing things even through the church to uh, uh, expose his character to the angelic sphere. Turn to Ephesians 3 for a second. And Jesus made it, the unseen. By the way, you know, there's angels out there. There's demons too. Now, Jesus made it all. We know Satan was created the day he was created, but he fell. He was created perfectly blameless, but he fell. He sinned, and so did the angels that followed him, a third. Ephesians 3.8. To me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Oh, amen. We're done for today, right? Amen. And, being, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Jesus is God, by the way. Um, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God's wisdom being made known to the demonic spheres. They're in heavenly places. They're going to get kicked out. You can see that in Revelation 12. But uh, it's so that his wisdom would be made known. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus our Lord. So then back to our passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn preeminent one of all creation. All creation, get it? Because for, because by him all things are created. That's, it's just really clear when you read it through, right? So we saw what John 1 said earlier. All things came into being and apart from him nothing came into being. They came into being by him and apart from him nothing came into being that's come into being. Jesus created all things. By him all things were created do you believe this thus that he is lord because he has the rights to his creation do you believe this do you believe jesus is lord including being lord over you he created everyone he is the lord thus his creation is to submit to him and he calls upon his creation who has fallen to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins to repent to believe so notice again he says again in the end of verse 16, all things have been created by him and for him. The Lord Jesus created all, but there's something interesting here. He says they were created for him. We think we're for us, right? We're created for him. That's quite interesting. Let me share some passages that reveal some of this great truths. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29, 15. You see, we got everything backwards. We make it all about us, and therefore our solutions are about us, rather than focusing on him and allowing him to bring about his truth uh, to bring us right with him. Isaiah 
Isaiah 29:15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and those who are done, those whose deeds are done in a dark place, and say, "Who sees us, or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay?" Uh, that what was made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what was formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Hey, it's flipped on its head. It's turned around. Go up to Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. By the way, we're by and large not quarreling anymore as believers, but we can quarrel a little bit. We can want our way. We can not listen to him, right? Now, these are the bad guys here, but uh, we can learn from this. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing that you are making say, he has no hands? Go up to 64, Isaiah 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, thou and thou are potter, and all of us are the work of thy hand. He made us. And one last passage, go back a little bit, Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. He says we're created for his glory. We're created for his glory. Wow. Boy, this truth would shut the counseling offices down. We're created for his glory. It's not about us and what has happened to us. It is about him. It is about him. We're created for his glory. So does your view of God include the reality that you were made for him and not he for you? We're made for him. Now, he's so gracious. He is our God. He loves us. He's kind. He's offered himself to us through his son, bringing salvation. He loves us. He's kind. He's merciful. We see his character. But we were made for him. We were made for him. Therefore, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and our problems, and we need to cast them upon him. He's so gracious. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Get our eyes on Jesus. If we are for him, let him do what he pleases then in your life. And guess what? When you're filled with the knowledge of his will, that's what happens. That's what happens. But let me share one warning again here. Isaiah 29. Let's, uh, let's turn to Isaiah 29:15. Woe to those who hide their plans from the Lord, deeply hide, whose deeds are done in a dark place and say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Should the potter be considered equal with the clay? We need to put things back in order. He made us for him and not uh, him for us. Right? So in case you're tempted to sympathize with those heretics and false prophets who claim Jesus is part of the creation, um, Paul continues. He says in verse 7, and he is before all things. What does he mean by that? He's before, certainly in, in position. He is pros and before, but I think this actually um, even goes beyond that. Literally here in the Greek, you could read it, he himself. They add the term atos, inspired by the Spirit. He himself, emphatically, is before all things. So he was not, uh, the, 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 he was not uh, created. He didn't come into existence. He is before all things. He's before everything that was created because he's the one who created it all. He himself is before all things. A few passages. Uh, we'll finish up here. Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, a pathra, too little to be among the clans of Judah. For, 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 of Judah, from you, excuse me, from you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. 
Someone says, Jesus is created. No way. Look at this. This is, you're, you're lying. It's not true. From the days of eternity. He's eternal. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no other God formed, and there will be none after me. There wasn't God, and then God made another little God. It's God, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, eternally God, one God forever and ever. It's one God. He says, even from eternity I am he eternity you remember Jesus' remark to the Pharisees truly truly I say to you before Abraham was born I am very clear he pre-existed he is before all things thus he is separate from his creation there is God and there is the creation and God created all things and he did it through his son Jesus Christ and one last thing to look at as we finish up here and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is actually a very comforting verse, if you think about it, by the way. You see, we saw that he created all things, right? And here it says he is for all things, and in him all things hold together. Isaiah 40, verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth and inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He is, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, he, who makes judges on the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have their stock been taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth, their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. We forget how powerful our God is. We, we grovel in prayer at times. Not remembering, he is all-powerful. He holds all things together. And if he decides to act upon a prayer according to his will, it is going to be done. If he says something in his word, it is going to be done. We need to believe it and trust in him. He holds all things together. We live in this threat of nuclear war. And always when Christians go, oh, what if it blew up? You know, the reality is he holds everything together. If he allows it to happen, he allows it to happen. But he's holding things together. We know it's not going to get totally blown up because he's told us what's going to happen in the future, right? We know what's going to happen. We believe the Lord. Christ holds everything together. It's interesting, the destructive power of one atom, he holds everything together. Zillions and billions of atoms. So if he holds that together, don't worry when your life's unraveling. Let him hold you together. Let his word comfort you. Let his word direct you. Let him uh, help you. Trust him. Don't worry, but pray. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. But through prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. This is the God who made it all, who's above all things. It's not just God. It's God, right? And the peace of God, that must be some great peace. Yes, it is which surpasses comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him or your cares, for he cares for you. The God who made it all, who died for you, in whom we are joyously giving thanks for what he's done for us, uh, he cares for you. Trust him. Trust him. And when you see him rightly, then that trust uh, sure seems much easier. When you see who he really is, then we don't waver. So do we have an accurate picture of who Jesus is? There are people out there who are spreading inaccurate pictures, claiming to be Christians, and they are evil. And we need to stay away from that. We're going to see in Colossians 
that the solution is not to battle with them. We're to stay away from them. The solution is to have a right picture of Jesus ourselves. He's God. We're not. He's Lord because he made it all. He made it all. We're not. We're made for his glory, and he holds all things together. That includes us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you have revealed in your word concerning your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that this wonderful son of yours, uh, who, who through him you created all things, uh, that he also gave himself for us and that he loves us. Lord, how can this be? And that we inherit uh, all things, that we are joint heirs with your son, Jesus. How can this be? You are so great and so good and so kind. Forgive us for our lack of faith when we don't see you rightly, we don't see your son rightly, when we don't uh, see you, uh, your deity rightly. Forgive us. Help us to be humbled and cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, I thank you for uh, what we have seen, and I pray that Christ would stay in our focus that we would fix our eyes on him. Praise in Jesus' name.